Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 13th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. There was something I said last Saturday on the program with Feng Longshanks about Ruth, which helps to demonstrate that she was an Israelite racially. And one listener, who, who's also a Christianity Forum member, had asked me about that in, in a message today. So I thought that here I would briefly clarify what I said so that everyone could hear it, everyone who listens to these downloads, the, these podcast downloads anyway. Ruth was redeemed for Naomi, her mother-in-law, by Boaz, one of um, Naomi's, well, well, ostensibly her husband's, near kinsmen. But there was one kinsman redeemer who was closer to Naomi than Boaz was. And it was his duty to redeem Boaz first. Upon his not being able to do so, the obligation fell to the next of kin, which was Boaz. However, this first kinsman, who was unnamed in the book of Ruth, his not being able to redeem Ruth was also a matter of disgrace and a reproach which he may have easily avoided if Ruth was indeed a racial Moabite. Let's read from Ruth, cha- Ruth chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself. There was also land involved. Lest I mar mine own inheritance, redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to confirm all things by the law, right? a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. Well, the book of Ruth didn't really describe the entire process, but it referenced it so that we can go back in the law and see what the law says in these instances. From Deuteronomy chapter 25, from verse 7, And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, his near kinsman's wife, then let his brother's wife, which would be Ruth in this case, go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stands to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot. This is what the book of Ruth is referring to. And Bid in his face, and shall answer, and say, 
So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. This is a curse when you cannot redeem your brother's wife for, for whatever reason. It's a reproach. So shall it be unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that has his shoe loosed. That's a curse. That's a reproach. There's no doubt. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 7 through 10. The law being only for Israel, only Israelites could seek such a relief as kinsman redemption under the law in the first place. Otherwise, this kinsman who suffered this reproach, who could not redeem roots, may have merely quoted Deuteronomy 23.3. That's all he had to do. Where it says, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to their tenth generation, they shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever. That's the law, Deuteronomy chapter 23. Doing so, if this near kinsman had cited this law, he could have escaped the obligation of redemption because you can't force a man to break the law of God and redeem some alien who's excluded from the congregation forever. If you go, if you go marry some Canaanite and you die, you think, I'm going to redeem you? I'm going to raise up seed to you from that Canaanite? No way. That's using one law to require me to break another? No. That Canaanite, she has no entitlement to redemption. This Moabite, if she was a racial Moabite, she had no entitlement to redemption. And all this man had to do to escape this curse under the law. This is the law. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25 that his house would be cursed because he didn't build up his brother's house. If Ruth was a racial Moabite, all he had to do is cite the law, and he could have walked away without suffering the reproach of that curse. We must imagine that this unnamed kinsman was aware of the law and that he knew what his options were. We cannot imagine that these Israelites, who were aware of what the law said in Deuteronomy chapter 25, were ignorant of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 23. That right there, that should be enough proof that Ruth was a racial Israelite who lived in the land of Moab, where the, half the tribe of Manasseh lived and part of the tribe of Gad, and, and some of the tribe of Reuben, in and around the ancient land of Moab. So Ruth was certainly an Israelite who, 400 years after the children of Israel took the land of Moab, maybe 450, she was called a Moabite because of her geography, but not because of her race. If she was a Moabite by race, 
this man in Israel could have easily escaped this reproach simply by citing the law in Deuteronomy 23.3. So that's what I meant last night when I talked about being able to prove that Ruth was a Moabite by the context of Ruth chapter 4. And with that, we will commence with the epistles of Paul. Romans, this is part 10 of this presentation. It's subtitled, The Gift of the Spirit is Genetic. That's not all that we're going to talk about tonight. However, it certainly is one of the things that we intend to focus on. I I pray that I I can um, establish that clearly. In Romans chapter 5, Paul described how not only the children of Israel, but even the entire Adamic race has a sure promise of eternal life in Christ. In chapter 6, Paul explained that obedience to the law remains necessary in spite of the fact that men would not be judged by the law. In chapter 7, Paul explained how Israel was freed from the law in Christ and also explained how the law should encourage men not to sin, how by it men should learn the nature of sin, and how it should help man and the consequences of sin, and how it should help men to understand their own sinful nature, whether they succeed or fail on any given occasion, as opposed to their spiritual nature by which they can overcome sin and the weaknesses of the flesh. The law being spiritual, those who have the spirit of Yahweh can indeed conform themselves to the law and agree with it, even though there may be times when they fail, the flesh being weak, they being in the flesh. These things are necessary to recall here, since Romans chapter 8, in its entirety, is a long conclusion to the several chapters which precede it. Romans chapter 8 both concludes and also confirms many of the things which Paul had said in these several previous chapters. With that, we will commence with verse 1 of Romans 8. Now then, there is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ Yahshua. The words en Christo Yesu are literally in Christ Yahshua, right? That's how the King James always translates it, literally. But here they are among the number of, and, and that meaning, that, that idiomatic meaning of the word "an" is supported by the lexicons, especially by Liddell and Scott. To be in Christ Yahshua would be to in, be in his number or to be amongst his people. The Codex Alexandrinus. The Codex Alexandrinus is actually the codex which modern scholars say represents the Byzantine tradition from which all of the medieval manuscripts, or at least a great number of them, right, had, had been derived, and, and those medieval manuscripts, the, the minuscules, 
eventually brought us what we call the Majari text, and also um, other manuscripts contemporary to the Majari text from which the King James Version was created. The Codex Alexandrinus and some later manuscripts add to the end of this verse the words, who walk not in accordance with the flesh. To that, the majority text and other later manuscripts, and therefore the King James Version, further add the words, but in accordance with the Spirit. In other words, the oldest manuscripts, the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Claromontanus, or, or, well, the Claromontanus is a 6th century manuscript. The Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus are 4th century manuscripts. They only have it, verse 1, now then, there is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ Joshua. That's all they have. That's the text. The Alexandrinus adds to that, who walk not in accordance with the flesh, and the majority text further adds, but in accordance with the Spirit. This is a significant interpolation. Now the same phrase, which is added here by the King James Version, does appear in verse 4 of this chapter where it belongs. But here in verse 1, this is a significant interpolation. It is my opinion that such interpolations support the Catholic ideas of heaven and hell. And there are other interpolations like this in Scripture. According to Flavius Josephus, of course, the Catholic ideas of heaven and hell belong to the ancient Pharisees. Indeed, Paul wrote only that there is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ. Why did he write that? Because Paul also wrote that all the seed of Israel shall be saved. All Israel shall be saved, paraphrasing Isaiah chapter 45, where it says all the seed of Israel shall be justified. As the Apostle John explained in his first epistle, if the Adamic man's seed is in him, then he cannot sin. Ostensibly, sin shall not be imputed to him. This is explained by Paul at greater length here in Romans chapter 5. However, as we explained when presenting Romans chapter 4, the nations which were the promise to Abraham, which sprung, from the children of Israel, had, for the most part, supplanted the old Genesis 10 Adamic nations, which have eventually, from this time, from the first century, all passed into oblivion. Therefore, the Hebrew term, which gives us the name Jacob, means supplanter for various reasons. The obvious one being that Jacob first supplanted Esau for the inheritance, the not-so-obvious one being that the children of Israel eventually became the Adamic world. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 29, from verse 22. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of mine hands, in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name, 
and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. In the Christian era, only the children of Israel can be those among the number of Christ, since only they are among the, the redeemed of Christ. Likewise, we will read from Isaiah chapter 44, from verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee, thou art my servant, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest and every tree therein. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. There is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ, because Yahweh, without exception, had promised to blot out the transgressions of the children of Israel. And there are many occurrences of that promise in the, in the books of the prophets, not just Isaiah. I like to quote Isaiah 44 because it sums all these ideas up quite nicely, as do the previous chapters of Isaiah. Verse 2. Indeed, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has liberated you from the law of guilt or sin and death. There's another interesting variation here in the manuscripts, and I believe it's important to, to point some of these out. First, to, um, to explain to people why the Christogenian New Testament differs in, in, in important points. And second, to show the differences in doctrine which can be arrived at because there are later interpolations and because there are changes in certain manuscripts of Scripture which have made their way into our popular Bibles. And we have to study these things. We have an obligation to study these things. We have an obligation not to take any man's word for granted, to go back and look at the oldest possible manuscripts, at the most original sources that we can arrive at, and to, to test our faith based on the best data that we can possibly obtain. That's why we have to examine these differences The codex, here Paul says to the Romans that the law of the Spirit has liberated you, meaning the Romans, from the law of guilt and death. The codices Alexandrinus, Claromontanus, and the majority text all have liberated me. Therefore, the King James Version here has made me free, as if Paul was referring to himself rather than to the Romans. 
Now, some who hate manuscripts, manuscripts after the 10th century AD, have liberated us. The text of the Christian New Testament here, where it says liberated you, agrees with the older codices, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. This is also a significant difference made with a change in a small word. One of many which lend to Christian identity confusion. All of the children of Israel were under the condemnation of the death of death in the law. If sin is through the law, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 5, and if the Romans were liberated from that law in the manner in which Paul explained to them at the beginning of Romans chapter 7, because Yahweh died as a man, releasing Israel from the law, then the Romans must have been a part of the ancient dispersions of the children of Israel, because only Israel was ever under the law. While sin was not imputed to the rest of the Adamic race, there not being law, as Paul also explained in Romans chapter 5, then the Romans must have been of true Israel, for no other explanation is possible if Paul's words are to be understood. Otherwise, Paul's just a babbler, right? Ancient history certainly supports Paul and the readings of the oldest manuscripts. Some of these divisions, these differences in, in these little words, you or me here in Romans 8.2, some of these divisions are much older than even the manuscripts which are employed in translation indicate. According to the Nestle Aland Critical Apparatus, which is a, a, a work which records all of the variations in the different manuscripts, in this instance, the works of the early Christian writer, Methodius of Olympus, who wrote circa 250 AD, support the reading, Liberated Me, that we see in the King James Version. But the works of the slightly earlier Christian writer, Tertullian, who wrote circa, circa 220 A.D., support the reading, Liberated You, which we see in the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and in the Christogenia New Testament. Other manuscripts, such as those in Latin and Syriac, are also divided on this word. This is not explained, I'm not going through this to cast doubt on the manuscripts, but rather I'm explaining this in order to manifest the importance of textual criticism. We have to examine these texts because of the many errors which were injected by man. Paul had already soundly included the Romans into the equation of law and liberty in Romans chapter 7. And therefore, context, context 
is of the utmost importance and must also be considered when examining all of these differences. If it was contrary to the context of the Bible for Paul to say, liberated you, then we would probably lean towards the other reading where he said, liberated me. However, where Paul said, liberated you, that fits perfectly into the context of Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 7, where he tells them again and again that they were indeed Israelites of the ancient dispersions. And he tells them that indirectly with language which can describing things which only related to the Israelites of the ancient dispersions. So all these things had to be considered when making a translation. Verse 3, the law is powerless. Literally, the powerlessness of the law is. The law is powerless in that it has been weak over the flesh. Yahweh sending his own son in the likeness of errant or sinful flesh and amidst guilt or sin, condemned guilt in the flesh, that the judgment of the law should be fulfilled among us or in us. That phrase may be translated in us. Who walk not in accordance with the flesh, but in accordance with the spirit. The judgment of the law was fulfilled among the people of Paul's time, but it is also fulfilled in each and every Israelite who accepts that his flesh is, metaphorically speaking, dead because of sin. And therefore, they should live in that eternal life which is granted through the Spirit. So either translation in verse 4 is plausible, among us or in us. The pleasures of the flesh are temporary. However, the spirit of the Adamic man being eternal, Christians must understand that living, they should live as though they shall indeed live forever and therefore seek to produce fruits worthy of that eternal life by striving to be obedient to God and caring for their brethren, which is what Christ instructed. Historically, it is obvious that the law, the law by itself never kept the people from sin. Being kept from sin requires voluntary proaction on the part of the man, and even that is no guarantee that the man will not sin, as all demonstrated at length in Romans chapter 7. Therefore, we see that while Israel was given the law, Yahweh still beckoned Israel to circumcise their hearts, which we may read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, speaking to a people who had recently agreed to keep the law, where it says from verse 15, only Yahweh had a delight in thy fathers to love them, 
and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. From this we also see that Israel was not chosen because they were obedient, but rather that Israel should be obedient because they were chosen. Yahweh does the choosing, not man. And the works cannot get a man chosen by Yahweh. The works won't get you chosen. The choosing was done long before you existed to do works. Because you were chosen, you should seek to do good. The law was only a tutor for Christ, as Paul explained in Galatians chapter 3. Therefore, is the law in opposition to the promises of Yahweh? Certainly not. If a law had been given having the ability to produce life, indeed, justification would have been from a law. But the writing has enclosed all, meaning all Israel, Therefore, it is clear that Paul uses the word all in the sense of all Israel, because only Israel is given a law, right? But the writing has enclosed all under fault or sin, in order that the promise from all the faith of Yahshua Christ would be given to those who are believing, meaning those of the promise concerning the offspring of Abraham, who are believing. This cannot be removed from that context of application to the people under the law. There are no promises of the faith to anyone else. Verse 23, Galatians 3, but before the faith was to come, we had been guarded under law, being enclosed to the faith destined to be revealed. It's only for Israel. Therefore, only those who are under the law are the recipients of the promise and the faith. So the law has been our tutor for Christ in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. But the faith having come, no longer are we under a tutor. For you are all sons of Yahweh through the faith in Christ Yahshua. Provided they are of the seed of Abraham to whom the promise was made, and that they were under the law. These words are explaining. These words of Paul's are explaining the fulfillment of the promise. They are not superseding it. That's the way the mainstream churches read it. The mainstream churches read this as if it's superseding the promises of God, and it's not. It's explaining the fulfillment of the promises of God. Paul's words cannot supersede the promises of God. The law being only a tutor for Christ or schoolmaster for Christ, as the King James Version has it, we learn that a man cannot be justified in a law. He cannot be justified by his own work. There must be a justification which transcends works. And that justification is in Yahweh. 
Paul explained in Romans chapter 5 that ultimately the entire Adamic race shall be justified because all the works of the devil shall be destroyed. Yahweh created Adam, but Yahweh did not take credit for having created the works of the devil. Verse 5. For they who are in accordance with the flesh strive after the things of the flesh, and they who, who are in accordance with the spirit, the things of the spirit. And that phrase, strive after, is from the Greek word phoneo, a word with a wide range of meanings in various contexts. Contexts. It is basically to think, to have understanding, to be wise or prudent, or also to be minded, to mean, intend, or purpose, Liddell and Scott. And Joseph Thayer in his lexicon cites that Liddell and Scott definition when he adds that it means, and he adds it appropriately because he supplies examples from Greek literature and adds that it means to direct one's mind to a thing, to seek or to strive for. Verse 6, indeed, the purpose of the flesh is death, but the purpose of the spirit, life and peace. And this word purpose, we have to be careful with this word. Paul is not referencing the purpose for which the flesh was created. Rather, Paul means to reference the purpose of the flesh as in the will or the intentions or the desires of the flesh. The translation of the King James Version, which says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That translation has captured the appropriate sense of the meaning here, but it has translated the nouns for flesh and spirit as adjectives, something which I would hope to avoid. The word phonema was also translated as minded on two occasions here in the King James Version. That word is also a noun, basically one's thought, will, purpose, mind, or spirit. So the King James destroyed the grammar and did a good job rendering the meaning. Verse 7, because the purpose of the flesh is hostile to Yahweh, then to the law of Yahweh it is not obedient, neither is it able to be. And they that are in the flesh are not able to satisfy or to please Yahweh. We may reason that the very desires which can be used for good, which help us to go forth and multiply, the very desires which can be used for good, which are triggered naturally through emotions and hormones, also cause the flesh to err to sin when it is left unbridled by the law. The law is spiritual. Therefore, if a man is led by the Spirit, 
he may overcome the deeds of the flesh and more closely follow the purpose for which Yahweh God created him. For this reason, the writer of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, said, I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. And we are when we're not guided by the Spirit. Verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in spirit. If indeed the Spirit of Yahweh dwells in you, and if one has not the Spirit of Christ, he is not of him. Paul is speaking in the context of Christian deportment, the law and judgment. To be spiritually minded is to seek to be obedient in Christ. Since the law is spiritual, Romans 7.14, those with the spirit of Yahweh, which is instilled within the Adamic man, should be able to overcome the flesh and be obedient to the law. If one has not the spirit of Christ, meaning that if one is not of the Adamic race, which is born from above, and we will talk about this a lot more this evening, then one is not among the number of Christ and has no part with the law from Psalm and, and has no part with the law. From Psalm fifty, from verse sixteen. But God unto the wicked saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth, seeing that thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind thee. The wicked should not have the law in their mouths, according to the psalm. There are people who are not of the race of Adam who have no opportunity to repent because they don't have the spirit. They don't have the spirit. They can't follow the law. The law is spiritual. You don't have the spirit. You contend with the law. This is why the Edomite Jew rabbis all throughout their Talmud and all throughout the last 2,000 years of history when you read their works, they are contending with the law. They are not agreeing to the law. Today we have people who claim to be Christian identity, and they contend with the law. Oh, that doesn't really say the congregation of God, that a bastard can't enter. That means something different. No, <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Don't contend with the law. Agree to the law. Otherwise, you're one of the wicked.
But if Christ is in you, indeed, the body is dead because of fault or sin, but the spirit alive because of righteousness, because the Adamic spirit is eternal, and Yahweh has deemed it righteous because he created it. Paul had explained at length in Romans chapter 6 that Christians should be baptized or immersed in the death of Christ and to count themselves dead on account of sin. Among other things, Paul said in that chapter, in verse 5, Therefore, if united we have become in the likeness of his death, then also we shall be of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body would be left void of guilt, that we no longer are in bondage to guilt. Again, probably about the sixth or seventh time in this series of presentations, I'll read from 1 John chapter 3. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. How does your seed remain in you? If one is kind after kind with Adam in his image and likeness, then one seed is in him, and one has an uncorrupted spirit which is imparted from Yahweh God. From Psalm 32, from verse 2. Blessed is the man under whom Yahweh imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Yet we must seek mercy for our sins by confessing them, and not ever denying them. As the apostle also said in that epistle, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Verse 11. Moreover, if the spirit of he who raised Yahshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raises the anointed from the dead will also produce alive your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. Resurrection is promised to the entire Adamic race, as Paul explained at length in chapter 5 of this epistle. As in Adam, all men die. In Christ, all men, all Adamic men, shall be made alive. Here Paul asserts that if one has that eternal spirit which Yahweh God bestowed upon the Adamic man, then one has an assurance of attaining the resurrection. From John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Verse 63, the words of Christ. It is the spirit which produces life. The flesh does not benefit anything except for man to procreate. The words which I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The spirit produces life. 
His word in us demonstrates that his spirit is in us or we would not be able to receive his word from John chapter 5, the words of Christ once again. And the Father who has sent me, he testified concerning me. And you have not ever yet heard his voice, nor have you seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, because he whom he has sent, in him you do not believe. And in another place, Christ told these same people, but you believe not because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. We shall discuss this subject further when we encounter verse 16. As to the phrase, he who raises the anointed, the way it reads in the Christogenian New Testament, Romans 8.11, The verb there, egairo, is in the aorist tense, meaning that it expresses an action that began in the past, but which may or may not already be completed. We do not have this tense for verbs in English, where the aorist tense expresses an ongoing action. Therefore, the phrase containing this verb may be read as he who raised Christ, if we imagine that the action was completed, or he who raises the anointed, the anointed being a collective reference to the children of Israel. And that is the reading that I prefer here, although it may as well be he who raised Christ. It really doesn't matter to the, to, to the context of the epistle. The word for anointed would indeed be read as Christ if we follow those manuscripts which add another word. They add the name Yahshua. And the majority of manuscripts do. The Codex Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, Claromantanus. The majority text does not have the name Yahshua, but it does have a different word order. The text here is read from the Codex Vaticanus. Verse 12. So then, brethren, we are obligated not to the flesh to live in accordance with the flesh. For if in accordance with the flesh you live, you are about to die because you're going to be punished. If you live after the desires of the flesh, you're going to be punished according to the deeds of the flesh. You're going to be punished for your sin, for following the desires of the flesh. As Paul said to, um, as Paul said to the assembly of Corinth concerning a certain fornicator, he must have been living according to the desires of the flesh. He said to put one out of the assembly so that Satan the adversary would destroy the body so that the spirit may live in the day of Christ. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to suffer the punishments thereof. You are about to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Indeed, as many as are led by the spirit of Yahweh 
These are sons of Yahweh. However, and this is important, I know the Universalists, they love to um, abuse this passage. The gospel message was not intended to make Israelites out of non-Israelites. That Universalist idea is in contention with the greater part of Scripture, which the Universalists then pervert by either ignoring the context or denying the plain meanings of the words. From John chapter 3, verse 7, you should not wonder that I said to you that it is necessary for you to be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes and where it goes. Thusly are all, are all who are born from of the Spirit. A man born from of the Spirit has the Spirit of Yahweh in him. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if there is a natural body, speaking about Adam kind, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. And there is no interceding baptism ritual necessary to serve as a prerequisite to having that spiritual body to which he refers. The Apostle John had warned in his first epistle to try every spirit which we encounter because there are spirits born of God and there are spirits born of the world which are contrary to God. Only the Adamic race is recorded in Scripture as having a spirit from God and those born of the world are not of Adam or of Yahweh our God. The law of Yahweh being spiritual, those led by the spirit of Yahweh should seek to keep the law. Following the law, an Adamic man demonstrates that he is of Yahweh. However, that's a two-edged sword, a non-Adamic man cannot demonstrate that he is of Yahweh by pretending to the law since the law is not for him. That's exactly what Jews and Muslims are doing right now. It must also be understood that disobedience alone does not mean that one is not of Yahweh, since there are other reasons for disobedience. From Zechariah chapter 7, where the word of Yahweh speaks of Israel, yeah, they made their hearts as in a damned stone hard lest they should hear the law and the words of Yahweh of hosts, which the word, the Lord, I'm sorry, I'm confused. Lest they should hear the law and the words which Yahweh of hosts had sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from Yahweh of hosts. So, the people refused to hear the law. That doesn't mean that they weren't born of God. They were Israelites. They surely were children of God. He called them his children. We shall see that soon. So it must be kept in mind that we demonstrate obedience and love for God by striving to keep his law. Yet, our justification is not of the law. If it were 
None of us would be justified. We've all broken it. We've all sinned. As we have seen Paul explain in Romans chapter 5, justification is a promise to the entire race of Adam apart from the law. So we demonstrate that we are children of Yahweh if we're led by the Spirit of Yahweh and we keep his laws, we remain obedient, we fulfill his wishes. But if we depart and we err and we sin, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are not children of Yahweh. There are plenty of us who sin. Verse 15. Therefore, you have not taken on a spirit of bondage, anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons, in which we cry, Father, Father. Here the word spirit is used in a somewhat different sense. And the Greek, the use of the Greek word in profane literature also uses the word in that sense. Here, spirit is an influence, an inspiration, or a disposition. Therefore, it can be interpreted as an attitude. The word Abba is father. The King James Version has here Abba, father. It's not incorrect. It's a Hebrew Chaldean word which I decided to translate rather than transliterate. The King James Version has a word in this passage. The word is adoption. We're going to discuss this word at length. This word adoption has been greatly abused by universalists. And we shall, we shall certainly contend with them. But before we even discuss the word, we must consider this. Even if the Greek word huiothesia is acceptably translated as adoption, as the King James and other versions translated here, the word is only used by Paul of Tarsus in his epistles, and Paul of Tarsus makes it clear that the adoption he speaks of is only for the genetic children of Israel, for those who were under the law, where it appears in both Romans chapter 9, verse 4, and Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. In the Christogenian New Testament, the word huiothesia is rendered here and in Romans 9, 4 as the position of sons. In Romans 8, 23, it is the placement of sons. The word is a compound word from huios, which is a son, and the verb tisemi, which means to set, to put, or to place. The word huiothesia does not appear in the Septuagint, and in the New Testament, it only appears in Paul three times in Romans chapters 8 and 9, 
once in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, and once in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Before Paul, the word appears on several inscriptions. It was used by historians such as Nicholas of Damascus and Diodorus Siculus. This word, huiothesia, appears in Diodorus' Library of History, Book 31, Chapter 27, Paragraph 5. In a somewhat different context, of a father who gave his sons over for placement, where we, in English, would say adoption. Where it appears in the phrase, Dothysen Eis Quiothesian. The sentence in which the word appears is translated, or the phrase, I should say, I'll repeat the whole sentence. The sentence in which the word appears is translated by Francis R. Walton in the Loeb Classical Library edition of Diodorus Siculus thusly, where Diodorus is speaking of the famous Roman statesman Cornelius Scipio, and he says, Next, when Aemilius, his real father, died and left his property to him and to Fabius, the son's he had given in adoption, Scipio performed a noble act which deserves to be put on record. In that passage, the term adoption, as a translation of huiothesia, is natural in our language in the context which is supplied by other words, such as the phrase, his real father, and the word dothysen. Dothysen is a third-person plural passive verb, meaning they were given over. It comes from the Greek word, which means to give. However, one may be placed into a position as a son in more than one way and for more than one reason. In the case of Emilius, who put Fabius and Scipio up for adoption. It is evident that for some reason he could not raise his sons, and therefore he gave them up to another to do so. He nevertheless left a misfortune when he died. Among the emperors of Rome, a man designated to be heir was adopted by the emperor, although the man so designated had already come of age. This adoption was the legal placing of a man into the designation of a son so that he could be the heir. In spite of whether the man was already related, Julius Caesar was the maternal great-uncle of Octavian who became Augustus Caesar, and Julius adopted him as his heir. Octavian, in turn, adopted as his heir his stepson, Tiberius. Later, Claudius adopted his grandnephew Nero as his heir. Some emperors succeeded without adoption because they were natural sons, such as Titus and Domitian. However, 
It is evident that the act of adoption was used in Rome so that a man could be recognized as an heir even if there was already a familial connection. While the word huiofessia properly describes the placement of a son, and this is important to recognize, the word huiofessia did not describe the act of adoption. No, it didn't. We say in English that Aemilius placed his sons for adoption because we understand that adoption is being spoken of from the context in which the word was used. But the word huiofessia did not describe the act of adoption in Greek. It only described the placement of a son, where in English, the idea of adoption is read, is understood by the context. There were common words which were used to specifically describe the actual act of adoption in Greek. Ahimilius was the father of two boys whom he placed for adoption. And the word used to describe his placing these boys was quiofessia. But quiofessia would not have been the word used to describe the other end of the process, which was the act of adopting. Other words were used in Greek to describe that act, which were employed from the classical era down through and even beyond the New Testament period. This is where the mainstream translators have this word all wrong. These other words were ispoieo, which is defined primarily by Liddell and Scott as to adopt as one son or to give an adoption. Ispoieo literally means to make into. The noun, aispoiesis, is adoption. The adjective aispoietis means adopted. These are the words which describe the actual act of adoption. Cleocesia is simply the placing of a son, which can be for adoption, but it could be for other things too. At huios, the common word for son, Liddell and Scott define the phrase huion poiestahitina from the writings of Ahiskenes to mean to adopt him as a son. The literal meaning would be to make someone into a son who is obviously not a son in the first place. In Plutarch's work called The Parallel Lives at Otho, Chapter 16. All of this will be linked and posted with the notes to this podcast. The ill fated emperor had designs on adopting his nephew, who was named Cocius, as his heir. Plutarch wrote of him that he had put off the adoption using the word ispoiesis to describe the act of adoption itself. So, Freothesia describes the placing of the son, and in some contexts, that could be for adoption.
But Cleothesia does not describe the act of adopting the other end of the bargain. Icepoiesis describes the act of adoption. So Cleothesia, in all contexts, cannot be translated as adoption. And in the New Testament, where Paul used the term, it certainly cannot honestly be translated as adoption. Yahweh addresses the children of Israel at Deuteronomy 14.1, and he says, Ye are the children of Yahweh your God. In the word of Yahweh in Isaiah, Speaking of the coming punishment of the children of Israel, it says in Isaiah chapter 30, from verse 9, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of Yahweh. So being a son or a daughter did not hinge on being obedient. The children of Israel were disobedient, but they were still children of Yahweh. Likewise, it says in Isaiah chapter 63, from verse 8, For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. But they were still his children. The children of Israel were accounted as children of Yahweh, and in their disobedience and rebellion, they lost their position in his kingdom. But... They were still children of Yahweh. For this reason, the Apostle John testifies in his gospel that Christ would gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad, as well as those in Judea. Why were they scattered abroad? Isaiah 63. They rebelled and they vexed his Holy Spirit but they were still his children. So Christ came to gather in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Therefore, in their restoration, Paul says that the position of sons is for the children of Israel, the word which the King James translates adoption. It's for the children of Israel in Romans chapter 9. And in Galatians chapter 4, he says, And when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover. That word is not lambano. Lambano means to receive. That word is apolampano. And apolampano means to recover or to receive what you have coming to you, that he would recover the position of sons, that we would recover 
the position of sons. Paul further explains that this recovery of the position of sons was predestined in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 4. Or from verse 4. I'll read verses 4 and 5. Just as he has chosen us with him before the foundation of the society, for us to be holy and blameless before him, with love, having preordained us into the position of sons through Yahshua Christ for himself in accordance with the satisfaction of his will. The only people prophesied to be so chosen and preordained are the children of Israel. Isaiah chapter 44, like I said, is a passage I cite very often, or a chapter that I cite very often. We cited later parts of it earlier this evening. The ideas expressed in Isaiah chapter 44 are expressed in many other places in the prophets. I only prefer Isaiah 44 because it sums up a lot of these ideas and repeats them in, in one short space. And here I will read from verses 1 through 7. Yet now hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which help, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, the promise of the Holy Spirit, upon the seed of Jacob. And my blessing upon thine offspring, and they shall spring up as among the grass, and as willows by the water courses. One shall say, I am Yahweh's, meaning one of thy seed, in verse 3. One of thy seed shall say, I am Yahweh's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, meaning one of those offspring, in verse 3. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto Yahweh and surname himself by the name of Israel. Another of thine offspring, from verse 3. Thus saith Yahweh, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who, as I, shall call, and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people? This is an important verse, which is poorly understood. Nobody else can do the calling. And who, as I, meaning as God, shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people, the answer to that is no one. Only God can do that. Nobody else can do this calling since Yahweh already appointed his people, the children of Israel. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Israel was chosen. Israel was the ancient people who were appointed. And Christ came to redeem those same preordained people, those who were under the law. It should be clear 
that there is a great difference between the placing of a son to be given over for a purpose such as adoption, as the phrase used by Diodorus Siculus means, dothysin, they were given over, ice, for quiofession, placement. In this case, we understand from the context that that placement is adoption, and that's the way the translator chose to translate it. Real simple. But there's a big difference between the way Doris used the term and the manner in which Paul uses the word. The actual act of adoption is not described by huiosesia. It's described by aispoiesis, which is a word which Paul never uses and which is nowhere at all in the Greek scriptures, neither in the Septuagint nor in the New Testament. Therefore, it is absolutely certain that this word adoption, as it is mistakenly rendered in almost all modern translations, has nothing to do with the admittance of outsiders and everything to do, as we examine all these scriptures, with the status of Israelites in the kingdom of Yahweh. That's what it is related to. One may be placed for adoption by a father giving up his sons, which is the case with Emilius, the man described by Diodorus Siculus, but one can be placed into the position of a son when one is already a son who has been estranged and is now being reconciled to a father. And that is the manner in which Paul used the word in his epistles, which is why it only pertains to the children of Israel. Verse 16, that same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh. And if children, then heirs, heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ. If indeed we suffer together, that also we will be honored together. The reference to that same spirit is to the spirit of Yahweh mentioned in verse 14. And here we see that the spirit of man, Adamic man, ostensibly, the spirit of man is distinct from the spirit of Yahweh, even if it was bestowed upon Adamic man by Yahweh. The idea that man, and there's a couple of really wacky ideas in Christian identity, and in mainstream Judeo-Christianity, the idea that men somehow receive their own spirit from God upon the conduct of a baptism ritual is wrong. That idea is wrong. I don't care how you want to read the book of Acts. That idea is wrong. Rather, if we have that spirit in us, which he bestowed upon a damnic man, and we turn ourselves to him, 
He comes to dwell with us. That is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that the early Christians received after they were baptized in Christ. They had their own spirit already. Otherwise, they would not be Adamic man. But when we turn to Christ, he comes to dwell with us as he says in John 14.23, If one would love me, he shall keep my word, and my Father shall love him, and we shall come to him the reception of the Holy Spirit. And we shall make an abode with him. That is the nature of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of God dwelling alongside the Spirit of man, as Christ explains in John fourteen twenty three. Here we shall read a greater portion of John chapter 14, and offer some comments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is from verse 15. And I shall ask the Father, and he will give to you another advocate, that it would be with you forever. The spirit of truth, which society is not able to receive, because it does not see nor does it know it. You know it, because it abides with you and it is in you. This is before the day of Pentecost. We see that the spirit of truth, which can only be that spirit which is from God, was already in the apostles before the day of Pentecost because Christ is referring to the Adamic spirit bestowed upon our race, the Adamic race. He's not yet referring to the Holy Spirit here. You know it, the Spirit of Truth, because it abides with you and it is in you. I shall not leave you fatherless. Christ telling the apostles, I shall not leave you fatherless. That's a literal translation of the word. I come to you. I come to you. Here Christ tells us that he is one and the same as the Holy Spirit because he is indeed God incarnate. He says, I shall not leave you fatherless. I come to you. Surely yet, and society shall no longer see me. But you shall see me because I live and you shall live again. Christ and the Holy Spirit are one. On that day, you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you, because all Adamic men have that same Spirit which is from God. Verse 21, He having my commandments and keeping them is he who loves me. Then he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, 
and I shall love him and make myself manifest to him. We should count for our brethren, those of our race, who keep the commandments of God, consciously or not. Verse 22. Judah, not Iscariot, probably the Apostle Jude, who was a, a, a half-brother of Christ. Judah says to him, Prince, what comes to pass that you are going to make yourself manifest to us and not to society. Yahshua replied and said to him, If one would love me, he shall keep my word, and my father shall love him, and we shall come to him, and we shall make an abode with him. The indwelling spirit, which Paul describes as a deposit in expectation of our redemption, Verse 24, he, not loving me, does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but is of the Father who has sent me. I have spoken these things to you, abiding with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, which the Father shall send in my name, he shall teach you all things and shall remind you of all things which I have told you. The Advocate, as we see in verse 18, is indeed Christ himself, the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ, the body of Christ, Yahweh the Father, they were all one. He referred to them from an earthly perspective as different entities. But he proves to us over and over again that they are all different manifestations of the same God. From the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 34, over 200 years before Christ, the spirit of those that fear the Lord shall live, for their hope is in him that saves them. The spirit of those. Now we should read from 1 John, chapter 4. Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of Yahweh because many false prophets have gone out into the society. John means embodied spirits, and there are corrupt men with corrupt spirits, as there are Adamic men with Yahweh's spirit, people of the world and people born of God. By this you know, the spirit of Yahweh, each spirit which professes that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh is from Yahweh. And each spirit which does not profess Yahshua is not from Yahweh. And this is the Antichrist, whom you have heard that it comes and is already now in society. You are from of Yahweh, children, and you have prevailed over them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in society. Those with the spirit of Yahweh, as opposed to those who have corrupt spirits, the spirits of bastards, spirits not from Yahweh. They are from of society. For this reason, from of society, they speak, and society hears them. Yahweh did not create they who are from the world. We are from Yahweh. 
the Adamic man of the Genesis creation, the man whose seed is in him. He knowing Yahweh hears us. He who is not from of Yahweh does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. From 1 John 4, 6, it is evident that men are from Yahweh before hearing the gospel. And being from Yahweh, they therefore have the ability to understand the gospel. The spirit exists before the silly baptism ritual. All men are born with it, as we shall see. All Adamic men. Of course, many aliens today are taught to believe in Jesus. But they certainly do not understand the gospel. The gospel is the message, is Yahweh's message of reconciliation to Israel. Aliens cannot understand that. They might believe in Jesus. They sure as hell don't hear the word of God. Paul explains in an allegory the nature of the spirit of man in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to read from verse 39. Not all flesh is the same flesh, but one flesh of man and another of beasts and another of birds and another of fish and bodies in heaven and bodies on earth. But different is the effulgence of the heavenly and different is that of the earthly. One effulgence of the sun, and another effulgence of the moon, and another effulgence of the stars. A star differs in effulgence from stars, or ostensibly from other stars, right? Paul is making a comparative allegory here. Verse 42. In this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now, if it's the spirit which produces life, as Christ tells us, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is sown a natural body. That's weakness, that's dishonor, that's the flesh. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It's the spirit in our body which produces life. Paul says, if there is a natural body, meaning a natural Adamic body, Speaking of the children of Adam only, as verse 45, the next verse, admits. So this can't be applied to anybody but the children of Adam. Paul's entire analogy here, his entire allegory, only belongs to the children of Adam. It is sown a natural body, meaning the resurrection, the restoration of the dead. The spirit must be sown with the natural body. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
if there is a natural body, an Adamic body, then there is also a spiritual. And just as it is written, the first man, Adam, this only pertains to Adamic man, the first man, Adam, came into a living soul, or as the Septuagint reads in, in English in Genesis 2-7, became a living soul. The last Adam into a life-producing spirit. And unless Paul is paraphrasing John chapter 6, he seems to be quoting something which is unknown to us today, but that's fine. But the spiritual, and this is where the Dewey Tuckerites and all these other clowns go off the track. They think that the spiritual existed first. But the spiritual was not first. Rather, the natural then the spiritual, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. The first man from out of earth, of soil, the second man from out of heaven, as he of soil, such as those also who are of soil, as he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven, all of our deceased Adamic kindred, and just as we have borne the likeness of that of soil, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven. Paul is making an analogy, which relates to the creation of the Adamic man and employs the first and last, or second Adam, to illustrate his analogy. The Adam of Genesis was the first Adam, and Christ is the second or last Adam, because there were only two Adamic men ever created with the direct intervention of Yahweh. The rest of the Adamic race are only a perpetuation of the first Adam. The Adam of Genesis was of soil first, and then Yahweh God breathed his spirit into him so that he had two natures, the fleshly and the spiritual. Yet, in Paul's analogy, the physical life of that first Adam represents the fleshly Adamic man. Likewise, Christ bore the image of the fleshly. However, being God incarnate and dying, his life was restored. And therefore, in Paul's analogy, he represents that eternal spirit which he himself had bestowed upon the Adamic man. Therefore, in Paul's analogy, each Adamic man has the nature of the two Adams, Adam and Christ, the first representing the fleshly and the second representing the spirit, which is eternal. As Paul says, that just as we have borne the likeness of that of soil, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven as those who are in heaven ostensibly a reference to all of our Adamic brethren who have passed. Where Paul says that the resurrection of the dead is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body, he leads us to conclude that the spiritual body itself is an inborn part of the nature of Adamic man, which we have already seen has support in other scriptures, such as John chapter 3, 
John chapter 6, John chapter 14, and 1 John chapter 4. Then Paul says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual, which reinforces that assertion. If there is a natural Adamic body, that natural Adamic body already has its own spiritual Adamic body, which was sown along with it, meaning that they came from the same seed. And they are both a part of our genetic material, providing we are Adamic men. Every Adamic individual has that same type of spiritual body. We're all in the likeness and image of he who created us. The Holy Spirit, which descended upon the early Christians, is an entity separate from the spiritual body, which man already has. And that Holy Spirit represents the reunion of the Spirit of God with man, as Christ promised of the Comforter in John chapter 14, 23, where he said, If one would love me, he shall keep my word, and my Father shall love him, and we shall come to him, and we shall make an abode with him. The ultimate promise of Christianity is that God make his abode with Adamic man permanent upon the earth. There is an odd belief in Christian identity, and I know this goes back to Wesley Swift, and it's perpetuated by screwy Dewey Tucker, that the spiritual body exists before the natural body, and that those spiritual bodies existed before the world existed. However, Paul refutes that idea and I know where they get that idea, with the idea that there were angels before the world existed. But those angels weren't necessarily us. That's where they trip up. Paul refutes that idea where he said in 1 Corinthians 15:46, but the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual. So much for the clowns who insist that they have truth from God, and really seek to contrive their own Bibles. The spirit of the Adamic man is certainly a part of his genetic heritage. And if children, then heirs, heirs indeed of Yahweh, and joint heirs of Christ, because we are born from God. We are born from above. And if you don't have that spirit, which Yahweh imparted to the Adamic man, then you are not of Christ, as Paul says earlier in this chapter. Verse 18. Therefore, I consider the happenstances of the present time are not of value, looking forward to the future honor to be revealed to us. Those words looking to are from a preposition, pros. Paul spoke similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he said, 
from verse 17, for the present lightness of our tribulation and exceedingly surpassing eternal abundance of honor is earned by us. We, not considering the things being seen, but the things not being seen. The things being seen, temporary, but the things not being seen, eternal. The Apostle Peter spoke in the same manner. First, in 1 Peter chapter 1, from verse 7, in order that the test of your faith, much more valuable than gold which is destroyed, even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Yahshua Christ, whom not having seen you love, and whom now not seeing but believing you rejoice with an indescribable and illustrious joy acquiring the result of your faith, the preservation of your souls. Life is supposed to be a trial. The happenstances of the present time are not of value. Looking to the future honor to be revealed to us. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be astonished by the burning among you taking place for a trial for you, as if a strange thing is happening to you. But just as you partake in the sufferings of Christ, you rejoice in order that also in the revelation of his honor, exulting, you would rejoice. Christians, no matter how much they suffer, should therefore consider the things which they suffer in this life to be relatively inconsequential when compared to the rewards that they shall receive in the next life which is the life that truly matters. Verse 19. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To transientness, the creation was subjected not willingly but on account of he who subjected it in expectation that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. The book of Ecclesiastes, found in our Bibles, was written by King Solomon, as were the book of Proverbs, which are not in their original form and also the wisdom of Solomon found in the Apocrypha. Near the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 2, is the proclamation, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is our opinion that Ecclesiastes differs in its attitude from Proverbs and from the wisdom of Solomon because the work is purposely written from a perspective of despair until one examines the passages which speak of God and realizes that all is vanity for a purpose, which is why we should consider the happenstances of the present time 
to be of no value, looking to the future honor to be revealed to us. Permanency only exists with the hope of God, and that is something else which the book also expresses, meaning Ecclesiastes. From Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10, I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work of God, the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God does it that men should fear before him. Nothing can be added to or taken away from the creation of Yahweh. Everything that's added to the creation by man, all the corruptions of man, will not persist. Not at all. Because nothing can be added to the creation of Yahweh. You want to go out and create bastards? They're headed to the lake of fire, no doubt, because you can't create your own creation. That's a corruption. It will not persist. The same writer said in the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil, death came into the world and made it hold his side to find it. So we see that while God created man to be immortal, nevertheless, the travails which man suffers at the present time, God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. The exercise would be meaningless if man were not immortal. What would be the point? Presenting Romans chapter 7, we encountered verses 12 and 13 where Paul explains that the law was given to Israel that sin may become manifest. With that, we read from the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15. From verse 1, But now, O God, are gracious and true, long-suffering, and in mercy, ordering all things. For if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power but we will not sin knowing that we are counted thine. For to know thee is perfect righteousness. Yeah, to know thy power is the root of immortality. We then explained that for this same reason, Paul told the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We then concluded 
that the reason to the presence of the children of God in this evil world is so that they may know sin and learn the importance of obedience. For this reason, was the creation subjected to transiency by Yahweh. And for this reason, shall the creation ultimately be freed from that transiency and restored once again to immortality, the liberation from the bondage of decay, which the children of Yahweh now expect. That's our hope. This is also why, ultimately, all Israel and the entire Adamic race shall indeed have eternal life. This is also the reason why no bastard can possibly have eternal life. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation laments together and travails together until then. Note here that this creation mentioned by Paul here in verse 22 and above in verse 20, this creation is referring to the creation of a single kind, the Adamic race. It is not the sum total of every kind as the word is misconstrued today. For we know that the whole creation laments together and travails together until then. From Psalm 94, from verse 1, O Yahweh God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Destroy them. Yahweh, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Yahweh, and afflict thine heritage. Yes, they do, and the whole creation of Adamic man laments together and travails together until then. Likewise, the same sentiment is expressed in Revelation chapter 6 from verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the soul, I'm sorry, under the altar, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood upon them that dwell on the earth? When we continue with our next presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans, we are going to consider at length his use of the word creation here. Since in these verses, the phrases rendered as the creation and the whole creation are clearly used to designate 
not everything which was ever created by Yahweh, but only the creation of a single kind, which in these instances are references to the Adamic man alone. This interpretation of Paul's statement is cemented in the final verses of this chapter, where the Adamic creation is contrasted to other things which Yahweh had created. If the words, the whole creation, which are often translated in the King James Version of the Bible as every creature, if those words really only refer to the creation of one kind, which is the Adamic man, then that has ramifications which carry over throughout Scripture to places such as one, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 1.15, Colossians 1.23, and even the spurious passage at Mark 16.15, where the King James Version says to preach the gospel to every creature. And those words are singular. It's really saying to preach the gospel to the whole creation, meaning the Adamic creation. As the King James has, Mark 16, 15, even though I esteem the entire passage to be spurious, it clearly is contradictory to the purpose of the gospel itself. Support for this narrow interpretation, the whole creation, which we will see next week, which we will examine in depth and see, really only refers to the whole creation of Adamic man, Support for this narrow interpretation is found in the wisdom of Solomon in chapter 19. From verse 6, For the whole creation in its proper kind was fashioned again anew, serving the peculiar commandments that were given unto them that thy children might be kept without hurt. In that passage with the words, the whole creature as Breton has it, the writer intends only the children of Israel. That's it. That's the context. We will examine that at length when we return with the later half of Romans chapter 8. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night to see Line Explained, part 23 to seed line in the New Testament. Good night.